Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris Quinn. I'm the youth pastor at Portland Community Church, and thank you for joining us on our live stream this morning. We started a series last week called Unexpected Jesus, where we look at a couple of stories where Jesus acts in a way that was totally unexpected for the people of his day. So last week, we looked at John chapter 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine, where he cleared the temple of markets and money changers, and then he predicted his own death and resurrection. And so this week, we're going to see how Jesus acts like a servant in a way that totally surprised and even upset his disciples in some ways. And I think one of the reasons Jesus acted in these ways, these unexpected manners, is to kind of wake us up out of our our complacency and to grab our attention that we need to see something a little bit differently. Because I think far too often we look at things like service in a way that is not the way that God intended for it to be within scripture. You see, sometimes we do service out of kind of a guilt because it's something we feel like we're supposed to do and we're going to be judged by other people if we don't do it. Or we might not do it at all because we see it as kind of an optional part of Christianity to serve others. Sometimes we might serve because we think it puts us in a better position with God and that we can show him this is what we did for him. Or we don't do it because we believe in some way that people should be able to just kind of figure things out for themselves and that maybe we're actually enabling some things that we think are not good behaviors in them if we were to serve them and help them. Or lastly, we might serve them because we love how it makes us feel on the inside instead of looking at it from a biblical perspective. And so all of these perspectives miss the mark in major ways of what service is really about and why Jesus does it in this story. So it's especially crucial for us to understand What service really is, especially when we're at a time in this kind of national emergency, this crisis that we're in, where we are more aware of how we can care for others and how we can serve others and show others love. And so here's what I think we do. We either view service through a selfish lens or through a lens of self-righteousness. And so we view it in these two different ways, where it's about us and what we get from it, or how we are viewed in our self-righteousness. And we might even look down on other people because of it. But our service really is focused on how Jesus loved us first to serve others, which shows the world we are his true followers. So this morning, we're going to look at four principles of serving others that reveal we are true followers of Christ. So now I invite you to turn to John chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 35. And I want to kind of remind, take a moment to remind us of the background of the book of John. You see, the apostle John wrote that gospel in order to help us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what he says at the end of his book. That, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So his two main goals, as we talked about last week, is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then secondly, that we would have life in his name. Not just going to heaven someday when we die, but a abundant eternal life that begins the moment we believe in him and we are radically transformed, that we believe in his death on the cross and that changes us from the inside out. 
So John wants to use this story we're going to look at this morning in chapter 13 to help us believe that Jesus really is the Messiah. And he's doing something that is totally out of the ordinary. And his disciples actually got upset about it, didn't quite know how to react to it. Because here's ultimately what he does. He humbles himself to the level of a servant or a slave, even though he is the Lord. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 5. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So this takes place in what is called the farewell discourse or also the upper room discourse. Because at this time, Jesus knows that his time to fulfill what he has come to do has now arrived. And so now he's thinking about how he's going to leave some final words for his disciples and how they can continue his ministry here. And so they meet at this time right before the Passover, and it's likely with a smaller group of his disciples, possibly the 12, but also possibly not. But Jesus is now going to show them the extent of his love. That's what that phrase means at the end of verse 1, that he loved them to the end. Yes, that does mean he loved them to the end of his time here on earth, but he's now going to show the full extent of what of how much he loved them. Because what's crucial to understand about this story is this is not just a good example for us to live by, but this is Jesus showing how much he loved his disciples and how much, by extension, he also loves his people, us. And remember, keep in mind through this whole story, Jesus knows full well what is about to happen and what is happening. He's in total control. He knew that he was only a few hours away, that he was going to be crucified, and the culmination of his life has now approached him. And so G- Judas, now, you, if you know the story, you see it even said here he's going to betray Jesus. He is now kind of already orchestrating his plan to betray Jesus, but we're going to talk about that more later. But I want you to notice something here. It says that Jesus knew that he had all authority within this situation and that he had come from God and was something here. It says that Jesus knew that he had all authority within this situation and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, this part of the story where he is going to be betrayed did not come as a surprise to him. He was completely in control. And so in order to do this washing, Jesus then takes this basin. He takes this big bowl, large enough to contain enough water so that he didn't spill and sully the floor of the house that he was in. But what's kind of interesting here is how they describe the word reclining. What's really going on is not quite the Last Supper painting that you see where they're all sitting in a row at a table. What's actually happening is they were likely, uh, the table was in the middle and they were kind of circled around it. Then you would, each person would be reclining on their left elbow, eating with their right hand, likely finger food. And so they would have their back to the person to their left And be open to the person on their right. There would be this head pillow where Jesus was at 
with likely John on the right and surprisingly actually Judas to his left. And we'll talk about that more later. But their feet would actually be facing towards the outside. So Jesus got up from this feast, the focus point of why they were together. And then he goes around and starts washing their feet. And so there's two purposes for why Jesus performs this act. First of all, it's a symbolic gesture of him washing them clean of their sin. And it is as well an act that he wants them to replicate later between each other and for later generations of the church. This move actually anticipates what he is going to accomplish on the cross, washing us completely clean of our sin. And so we'll see to the disciples, this request is totally unfitting for a person of Jesus's stature within the society they were in, especially because they viewed him as the Messiah. But it's the same idea, the same model that Jesus that is used to describe Jesus's death on the cross. But usually this move to wash people's feet was done by a servant or a slave, which is why the disciples react so strongly against it, as we'll see in the next section. And here's why we have to understand why. Many of you might be type of people who have problem with feet and don't and think feet are kind of gross. Just take that idea and multiply it by like 100 in what this culture would be like in that day. Imagine walking through where these city streets were not paved. There would be a lot of dirt on the ground. There would be sand. They would be wearing open-toed shoes and they might walk through um, animal droppings, whether dog or camel, all kinds of different things, you know, cattle. There could be all kinds of different things they're walking in. And so these feet were disgusting. But Jesus is acting in a really fascinating way in this story. He's being the host of the party. He's provided a meal. He's provided for them to be able to recline and to relax. But he's also provided for this foot washing. Now, usually in this culture, the foot washing was actually done by a slave that was provided by the host. But instead, Jesus is doing it himself. He is lowering himself To become like a slave, to serve his disciples in this way, to wash their feet. And so because he's their teacher and he's their Lord, he's breaking all kinds of standard protocol for his culture at this time to do it. And he symbolizes that by removing his outer garment. And this is literally taking on the form of a servant that people would have ridiculed and mocked when they saw someone dressed in that kind of manner. And so Jesus takes off the outer garment. And now he's walking around washing their feet. And this shows that Jesus willingly humiliated himself for his disciples to serve them And to show love to them. And so this brings us to our first principle of service that shows we are truly followers of Christ. Is that Jesus' service flowed out of his humble character. Jesus does this because of who he is. Because of what he has done. Because of his nature and his character. And I don't think our culture really understands what humility is. Because we have a lot of people who you can give compliments to them, but they'll reject them. They'll say, oh, no, that was nothing. I didn't really work that hard at it. It was no big deal. That's not real humility. That's a sort of false sense of pride. But other people, some, some love to hog the spotlight, to brag about their accomplishments, what they've done in front of everybody. But the fact that Jesus served 
flowed out of his nature and character as God, not just because he was a better person than everyone else, because he was displaying that this was the character of God. I want to show you a verse really quick that that explains this. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this passage has some really thick theology in it, but let me explain it for you really quick and how it relates to our story. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus was and is in his very nature, his, his essence, he is God and that cannot change. But when he came to this earth, he proverbially took off that outer garment. He laid aside his condition of being God of his, of this essence, not for a way that he was no longer God, but as a way to say, I am no longer going, going to use this for my own advantage. So that he lived under the needs and weaknesses of, human, of a human body, experiencing everything that we feel, but choosing to live in a totally dependent manner on the Father. And so the reason for all of this was that was so that he could live this perfect, sinless life, becoming the atoning sacrifice that was needed to pay for our sins and that he then died for us. But it, he did this because of his incredible love for us, that he was willing to take on this humble form, this humiliated form so that he could display his love, so that he could serve us. He was considered a criminal to take the punishment of our sin upon himself, even though he did absolutely nothing. You see, Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sign of not only his love for us, but his service of being obedient to God to take on human flesh. And the depth and this depth of obedience was the willingness to go to his own death because of his great love. So I want you to ask this question. How willing are you out of your character and nature to humbly show love to other people? How have you submitted yourself to humility so that others could be served and to show them love? Let's continue. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
So Peter is actually my favorite disciple because if this guy could have an incredible impact on the world, then I believe anybody really can. He suffered from what I've heard a lot of people call foot and mouth disease. The kind of guy who would speak first before thinking. But he was a man of great passion and love for Jesus. And so he makes this really bold statement that Jesus will never wash his feet. And Jesus' response is very clear. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What Jesus is referring to here is how Jesus needs to totally wash us clean to have a real relationship with him. This wasn't about the mere act of washing Peter's feet, but, what about, but about what Jesus was going to accomplish on the cross. And so really, this is the same thing for us now is to embrace Jesus means to embrace his death. Not just the things that he could do. And so Peter, in his exuberance, hearing Jesus say that, then says, okay, then basically wash everything. But Jesus responds basically by saying that those who had a bath before coming to this feast really need only to have their feet washed because they really are clean. And he's basically telling them, look, you have had a faith. You have a faith that's real. You might not understand everything, but it is a real faith that You don't need to go through all of that to believe. But he then says, but there is one who is not clean. And notice what John says here, because look what he says. For he knew who was going to betray him. And yet, did Jesus still wash this one's feet? Yes, he did. More on that later. But Jesus says that if he has done this for his disciples, then they must do that for each other as well. So sure, he is their Lord. He's their teacher. He demands high respect within this culture. But then he humiliated himself for them like we talked about in the previous point. Why did he do that? Well, we learned, first of all, that it was to show his character, to be humble, to show, and secondly, to show that this was what he needed to do, what he was going to do on the cross. But then thirdly, he's just, to call them to an example, how they're going to do this as an example for others. That Jesus wanted to display that this is how you ought to be doing it for each other because I'm doing it for you. And so this example is not just in the physical acts of service, but in being willing to cast aside our lives for the better of someone else. Basically to lay down our lives like Jesus did for the sake of others. We do these kinds of acts of service because Christ is our example and it is what he did for us. And so Jesus says the word should in this paragraph, in this Greek word can actually be kind of translated to obligation. In other words, it's our job as Christians to emulate Christ and his love for the people of the church and his service to them. But this can't be motivated by some sort of begrudging obligation, but by a joyful expression of God's love for us. And so Jesus expands what he, he's talking about in these verses when he gets to verses 16 and 17. You see, a disciple would never truly claim that they are greater than their master. A messenger would never claim they are greater than the person that sent them. What Jesus is saying is that to not follow this example is to think of oneself as better than their master or better than the one that sent them. We are the disciples. We are the messengers. And if we don't live in this example, then we think we are better than our master. 
And so then if we act in this way, if we serve in these ways, Jesus says, you will be blessed. And we take that phrase, the, the you will be blessed phrase in ways of monetary blessings, of possession blessings, material blessings. But what Jesus is talking about here is this joyful stance of a right relationship with God. So this leads us to our second principle That Jesus' example begins with us being washed clean so that we can serve others. You see, serving only for serving's sake is charity work. It's not gospel ministry. If our service doesn't lead to people being washed clean of their sin like we have, then it's not real service. And I think far too often, churches have emphasized the service rather than what the service points to and trying to bring people to come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the reasons a lot of churches have failed. They have emphasized service without emphasizing why we do it. You see, the example that Jesus gave us is that there would be a total and radical transformation of our hearts. We have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, by our faith in him. And that this leads us to become new people who then go and serve Christ and serve others so that they will come to know Jesus. So this is the nature of what the kingdom of God is all about. When we become washed clean and transformed by our belief in Jesus' death, we are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit who then makes us basically as living pockets of the kingdom of God wherever we go, whether in our neighborhoods, to the grocery store, with our families and our clubs and activities and schools, wherever it is we go, we are representatives of God's kingdom and we are, have been made new by Jesus. We take the kingdom wherever we go. So the question becomes, when we're in quarantine like this right now, how do we do that? We can extend the kingdom through our technological means we have now. We can extend it through Facebook, through Instagram, through phone calls. We can reach out to the people in our community who are in real need and embrace them with the love of Jesus, that he loved us first, how he washed us clean, so that we can introduce them to the Jesus that wants to wash them totally clean of their sin. You see, God desires a people whose hearts are so changed that because of his love for us and how he has washed us clean, we would then go and spread that love to the rest of the world. Let's continue verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. 
So the discourse by Jesus here takes a very marked turn. And suddenly he's starting to talk about how he's going to be betrayed. And I actually think what the NIV does here is actually over-translates the concepts that are being portrayed here. You see, Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9, which speaks of a close friend who, uh, that is going to betray David, who he has eaten bread with. Because to eat bread with someone in this culture kind of gives a concept of a close personal friend. So you see, people in Mediterranean cultures actually viewed betrayal by a friend as far more heinous than an insult by an enemy. And so sharing a meal to them represented some important bond of kindness between two people. And injuring someone you shared a meal with was a major cultural offense. And so what the NIV softens is the next phrase. Where Jesus says, one who has eaten bread has turned against me. That turned against me phrase literally means lifted his heel against me. You see, to show the bottom of one's foot, to show the heel was an expression of hatred and contempt towards someone. And yet notice how this illustration has great symmetry with what Jesus is doing by washing his foot. So even though he was showing him his heel, he was Showing his heel towards Jesus, Jesus still went forward and washed his foot. Even though Judas was showing contempt and hatred, Jesus still washed his feet. And so notice something that's very crucial, what Jesus is doing. He's actually predicting this is going to happen. Well, why is he doing that? Well, John's purpose of the whole gospel of John shows up again here so that they would believe he is the Messiah, so that they would come to believe he is who he says he is. They wouldn't be surprised then. They wouldn't see Judas betray and then go, wait, wait, what happened? They would know that Jesus had predicted this and that he had a different knowledge than they did about all these events. Jesus is showing extreme control throughout this whole thing, showing that this is fully within God's plan. But Jesus shows he is troubled in spirit. And this is where he then says to him very clearly, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples are flabbergasted by this idea. There's no way that this could be the case. And Simon Peter, again, I love Peter, immediately has this reaction where he asks John to then ask Jesus who it's going to be. Now, remember, I talked about this earlier. The seating arrangement would be they would be reclining on their left elbows with their hands free to take some uh, finger food. And so John was sitting to the right of Jesus and he leans his head back and then he asks Jesus who it is. So this is now a private conversation that is happening. And so Jesus tells him the answer. He says, the one to whom I give this bread to. Now, I think this is a very private conversation that's happening between John and Jesus. And immediately then Jesus gives this bread directly to Judas, which is why it makes sense to have him on the left. Now to be on the left is to be in a position of heavy influence as well, because Jesus had his back turned to him. He was showing Judas a whole lot of trust that he wasn't, that he was not going to literally stab him in the back, but yet Jesus knows he's going to. But as well, you've got also got to notice something else about what Jesus does here. When Jesus dips the bread and gives it to Judas, he's actually doing something culturally that showed great favor and love to a person. So even while Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, he is still showing him love. It's incredible what Jesus is doing here. 
Jesus is showing a love that goes beyond just human relationship. But this also, the way Judas is handling himself and how he is sitting in that prominent position shows the real depth of betrayal that's happening here for Jesus. So at the moment of Jesus giving him the bread, the moment of this kindness that Jesus is displaying to Judas, Satan now enters into him and Jesus tells him to go because he's going to go do and to go do what he has been planning and to do it quickly. And the disciples, as you see from the rest of this section in in 28 through 30, did not expect this, did not suspect Judas in any way, shape, or form that this is what he was going to do. And so here's our third principle for serving others in a way that shows we are true followers of Christ is that our service is motivated by God's love for us despite our betrayal towards him. You see, Jesus totally knew the timing of events. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. It did not come as a surprise to him at all. You see, Jesus' divine power and status before God gave him the, the ability to completely act out in wrath towards Judas for what he knew he was going to do. But instead, Jesus displayed love for him. Yet Jesus, in the greatest of ironies, washed the feet of the man who was going to betray him to death. Have you ever showed that kind of love to somebody else? And so this puts into crazy perspective a fulfillment of what Jesus said to do, to love your enemies. And so you know that person. We all have these people in our lives that we don't like, or maybe even sometimes we even hate them. How have you shown them love? Have you gone to this extent to show them the love of Jesus? Have you served them unexpectedly and without pretense of anything in return? I got to be honest. I have a hard time saying that I do that on a regular basis, even if at all sometimes. But I want to stop here to make sure we understand something. Do you truly know that God loves you? You see, that can sound so trite in our culture, but I want you to really grasp this truth. I think it's actually a really unrealistic expectation for people to learn to love themselves. That is a massive burden. What we need to actually teach people is to learn to fully embrace the idea that God loves them no matter what they do. And that when we don't know this truth, that's when we really struggle to love others and to serve them. So you might be in a place right now where you don't feel the love of God because you might be fearful of what's to come during this crisis that we are in as a culture. But I want you to remember that God loves you. He cares for every aspect of your life. He cares deeply about what you're worried about and what you fear and what you feel. He cares deeply about what you have lost as a result of this crisis. And where you are hurting from it. And so I encourage you to do what Peter says to do in a letter he writes later on in church history. To cast your cares on him because he cares for you. But you also might be thinking you're like Judas. And you've done something so bad that it's on a historic level. And God could never love you. But Jesus very obviously and very clearly.